Welcome to Sex Care is Self-Care, a conversation on women's sexual health. Today I'm joined by members of our PBF Medical Board to discuss something very interesting. So Dr. Critchman, let's start with you. Can you introduce yourself and tell them what you do on a daily basis? Well, hi, Patty. Thanks so much for having us today to talk about so many important issues in women's sexual health. I'm a sexual medicine gynecologist. I am in clinical practice as well. I have uh, four offices that I rotate through. I see high risk um, women who are at risk for cancer or those who are dealing with cancer on a regular basis, plus those who have chronic medical conditions. In addition, I'm a professor at the University of California, Irvine, and I also uh, supervise the residents. But one of my uh, most honored positions is I am the chair of the medical board of the PBF. I get to work with wonderful women like yourself and the rest of the MAB to help uh, you know, bring women's sexual health to a new frontier and dispel some of the myths and mysteries and really empower women on a day-to-day basis to take control over their bodies, their sexual health and their general health in, in, in general. So it's really exciting to be here with you to uh, chat about some really important topics and thanks so much for having us. Cheryl. Hi, Patty. Um, I, I echo Michael in uh, saying what an honor it is to be here. I, I love my colleagues and I love the topics and the importance to women's sexual health. I am a clinical psychologist. Um, I have a division of behavioral medicine in an OBGYN department, uh, which allows the um, sort of the biopsychosocial model, which we'll talk about later, uh, of multidisciplinary approaches to women's health and women's sexual health. So I provide the psychological uh, help to women who have uh, GYN and other uh, medical issues. Um, I'm also a professor in the departments of reproductive biology, psychiatry, and urology, all important um, areas for women's health. Um, at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine. And uh, I'm the newest, maybe not youngest member of your medical advisory board. Um, so I'm so pleased that you have included a psychologist. Thank you. Thank you. Sherelle. Hello and good morning. I'm Sherelle Iglesia and I am the director of female pelvic medicine and reconstructive surgery for MedStar Health in Washington, DC. I'm also a professor of OBGYN and urology at Georgetown University School of Medicine. And my passion is educating women about pelvic floor issues. In addition to being a surgeon, we um, are intimately involved in training the next generation OBGYN and urology residents. And I'm happy to say that this past Friday was the big match day and all of my mentees, we had 12 um, go into OBGYN, they all matched. Six were particularly, um, I was very close to it. And that's exciting. So in addition to talking to you as patients and as advocates for women's health, we'd like to train the next generation of um, OBGYNs. Dr. Kingsburg, women are having more concerns with their libido more than ever. What do they need to know about libido in today's world and how can they address some of the concerns? Well, you know, women 
are more concerned than ever about their libido or what we would call sexual desire, but honestly, they've been worried for a long time. We just haven't talked about it. Um, it's only now that women are coming forward to say, hey, what about my sex drive? I want, I, I want a healthy sex drive. I used to have it, it's gone, where did it go? We now know that what we call uh, hypoactive sexual desire disorder or loss of libido is the most common, most prevalent sexual problem for women of all ages. We can estimate about one in 10 women. So on this, you know, whoever's listening, one in 10 of you um, are struggling with a loss of sexual desire and it's distressing to them. So we know actually about 43% of women in the US have can report decreased desire and about one in 10 are distressed enough that they would want to treat it. And that would be called hypoactive sexual desire disorder. And I kind of alluded earlier to the idea of a biopsychosocial model, which is a mouthful, but it really reflects the fact that sexual health is best understood from looking at sexual health or sexual problems from the combination of biologic factors that can contribute psychological factors, uh, sociocultural factors, and interpersonal factors. And that is particularly true for sexual desire. So if you think that there are biologic factors contributing to low desire, that could be a neurotransmitter imbalance, it could be loss of testosterone as you reach menopause, then we think about treating that biologically. We have two FDA approved treatments for loss of sexual desire in premenopausal women. We have two now. And guess how many you know, treatments we have approved for men? We have over 26, but we have two, two FDA approved, but for loss of desire. Um, and for postmenopausal women, we have off-label use, but absolutely data-driven, evidence-based testosterone for postmenopausal women who have loss of desire. That's the biologic issues. If you have underlying health conditions, if you have depression, by the way, one of the most common um, symptoms of depression is loss of drive. So you wanna make sure that you're treating the underlying depression or other medical conditions that might be causing sexual desire problems, right? So on the biologic side, we either treat an underlying medical condition or we have some pharmacologic treatments. Psychologically, again, depression, anxiety, performance anxiety, all can contribute to low desire. But the other concept is the interpersonal uh, component of sexual desire. Somebody could have all the biologic drive, they have great appetite for sex, but if they don't particularly like their spouse, they're not gonna wanna be sexual with that person. So you have to think if you are out there counseling women, you know, who say, oh, I don't really have much interest in sex anymore, you know, ask them, is it that they just don't have the appetite anymore, right? Spontaneous drive, they don't think about it, a romance novel doesn't turn them on anymore, or is it that they have drive, but their partner is really kind of not interesting to them? And that's the key to which kind of treatment you're gonna approach. We know that women in longer term relationships, for example, kind of struggle with sexual boredom. We, we all are sort of prone to that. You have about a two year window in a new relationship that, um, that creates that passion, the romance, the, the mystery, right? That, that horniness that we all kind of strive for. And after that, 
you know, you go into these long-term relationships where, you know, you're kind of a little bored. And so I think, uh, you know, as consultants, you are the key to fixing this for so many women, educating them that it is the case. It, there's nothing wrong with their relationship. There's nothing wrong with their relationship if they're thinking they're a little bored and they're a little, you know, things are humdrum. It is time the smart couple in a long-term relationship knows they have to add in spice. They have to add in a little novelty in order to create that mystery and the challenge when you live with somebody day in and day out, right? So um, this is the perfect opportunity to create some of the passion that gets lost in that long-term relationship. And so that's where sex toys come in, come in, experimentation, picking a different room in the house or a different time of day, not necessarily a different partner. Uh, that's for a different discussion. But what you want, and most people really want to maintain, they love their partners. And they say, this is my partner. This is my best friend. This is the person I want to be with. Why am I a little bored? And that's because with the long-term relationship, there is definitely going to be that, that sort of boredom. The other thing that happens is, and I have to say, and it's not always uh, heterosexual, but there is a desire discrepancy that often occurs. Look, no two people have the same sexual appetite, right? No two people. So whether it's two women, two men, a male or a female, you come in with a, with a difference. And so if one person has the drive and wants to be sexual, let's say four times a week, and the other person is like, four times a month, that discrepancy can create a problem because look, the person who has higher drive is like, well, to the person who has less drive, how come you're the one that always gets to say yes or no, whether we're having sex? Well, that's because their appetite isn't as strong. And so the person who's, you know, wanting it all the time would always say yes. And so there becomes sort of a resentment or feeling of being controlled. And for the consultants, it's helpful to educate women that that discrepancy is not a problem. It's just a discrepancy. And you learn to negotiate, you know, how often would you be able to compromise if you have less drive and how much would you be able to compromise if you have more drive to sort of create a happy medium? It's how I describe, you know, sort of ice cream. I personally have the, the drive to eat ice cream seven days a week, maybe even twice a day. Um, but, you know, maybe my partner, you know, would be happy with it once a week. And so we kind of compromise with a couple times a week so that, you know, too much of a good thing is not a good thing. For some people, eating ice cream every single day would give them a sugar headache or make them not appreciate it anymore. So it's recognizing the compromise there and, and, and helping women to understand that discrepancy is not conflict, it's negotiation. Right. And please remember, if you are on medicines, ask your clinician whether that may be a culprit in your loss of desire. Antidepressants, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors are total um, culprits when it comes to decreasing desire. They can help treat mood disorders, but sometimes they can cause problems with sexual function. Even uh, antihypertensives or, uh, you know, things for blood pressure can cause problems with arousal and to, sh to Cheryl's, Cheryl's um, topic, orgasm, right? Uh, and so can the SSRIs. They can create problems not just with drive, but with orgasm. And so before you start, you know, going down the wrong path, one of the simplest things to do is ask your clinician, 
who, by the way, may often not even know or care that there are sexual side effects. So read the package insert too. That you can do and see, huh, look at that. It's a sexual side effect. Maybe I should ask about a, a, a change. I have a question. So let's say that you, as we've spoken earlier, that not everybody's desire is the same, right? So let's say she does want to have sex five times a week and he only wants it one time a week. So with her using a bedroom toy, let's help her take the guilt or him take the guilt uh, away that, you know what, just because you don't want it, I desire it. So what do we say to those people out there that have this desire? Should they self-please? Well, can I just say what a gender difference there is? There is a double standard. You know, we have for generations assumed that men will masturbate and that that is not about, you know, sort of denying their partners or cheating on their partners, right? And so it is absolutely the same. When there is a desire discrepancy, women should be encouraged and empowered to self-pleasure self and using toys is certainly an easy and helpful way. And incorporating toys into the bedroom certainly, but also on their own, there is no reason and that is not considered essentially cheating. If your drive is higher, it is the way to compromise. We talk about it all the time with men and it absolutely should be the same uh, with women. There's always the worry and I, I hear a lot of men worry well, what if my partner likes her toy better, right? And what if she becomes dependent on it? And I would say, well, A, it's a good challenge for him, if it's a him, um, to be able to figure out, well, what is this? It's not a toy. It is about lovemaking. It, you know, orgasm, and Sherelle, we will finally get there. Orgasm is not the only thing that lovemaking is about. It is about the intimacy, it is about the fun, it is about the pleasure. Whereas, you know, men are going to, or partners will worry that their partners will become so dependent on a, on a toy and a device, that's a means to an end. It is an addition and an enhancement, it is not the goal, right? And so I think that's so important for women and couples to, to recognize. And by the way, we have data, we have, scientific data that women do not become dependent dependent on their toys or a vibrator uh, for orgasm. They don't. If they were only using vibrators throughout their lives to reach orgasm because that was how they worked, then that would be normal, that they don't develop a dependence. And women who did not use toys and could achieve orgasm through manual stimulation or intercourse they do not develop a dependence if they add in a toy. So can I please reassure everybody out there, there is no addiction, there's no dependence on toys. Love it. I think a lot of our partners out there need to pay that forward um, when they're speaking to other women that they're, you cannot develop a dependency. It's nice to have, really nice to have. It's an addition. Uh, it is not. It is not an addiction. There you go. Does anybody have anything else to add? No, I. But I agree that hotel sex is the best. <laughs> and then you have to have really good sheets, though, too. Yeah. I want these sheets. 
and 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 Patty, Patty, I think what we need to also do is normalize the concept of using a self-stimulator. And and again, you know, we talk a lot about empowering women, and very often women are shamed, and they feel like there's something wrong with them, and their their that attitude is from ignorance, from very often from their partners. Why do you why do you need that? You know, I've heard that all the time in my clinical experience that women are embarrassed. Um, so normalizing it with fact, normalizing it that um, this is part of anatomy, that there is nothing wrong, um, I think is really important to take that shame out of being empowered over your sexual response and really, you know, dispelling the myths. And some of these are perpetuated by their male partners. I, you know, I, I'll never forget this. When I was early on in my career, I had a woman come in with her partner and the partner um, said, you know, fix her. There's something wrong with her. I've been with thousands of women and none of them needed a vibrator because I was like so great in bed. And, um, you know, this turned into an educational session for both him and her and really understand that many women need direct clitoral stimulation. Uh, many women enjoy sexual pleasure uh, during intercourse, but are not orgasmic during intercourse. And, uh, you know, a vibrator um, is a normal adjunct to uh, the sexual experience, and we need to destigmatize that. And I think it's important the consultants have a great opportunity to normalize and talk about it as really an extension of your sexual experience. And let's also remember that men also can use self-stimulators. There are vibrating C-rings that men uh, very often enjoy that. And there's a lot of data on men and sexual pleasure and vibrators. And it's just a lot of cultural issues that they are, you know, uh, confined by these societal um, myths that, you know, if you're a true man, you can, you know, make a woman have an orgasm and you don't need any accessories. Well, you know, let's wake up and, and embrace fact and, you know, dispel the myths and get rid of this fake news and uh, really try to empower women to be, have control over their bodies. I think that's really super important and really important message. I have another like, like corollary and Dr. Kingsburg, because as couples age and health issues, whether it be, you know, prostate, breast cancer, I mean, erectile dysfunction and the dryness that occurs, that the desire, because it's associated with pain and or shame, particularly with erectile dysfunction, and I want to even bring out there pelvic organ prolapse for women when, you know, organs are falling, everyone thinks like, you know, things aren't functioning well, then they don't have the desire. Like what tips and tricks do you have? Because this is a natural part of aging, but you know, there's other things that you can do uh, for sexual health and well-being. Well, not only that, but it actually wakes couples up when they can no longer rely on 10 o'clock on Saturday night, we're gonna have intercourse in the missionary position. 
which then they don't even pay attention to each other when they actually have to work at figuring out what's going to be erotic and helpful and work now, it creates a whole mm -hmm. new lovemaking. So sometimes taking intercourse off the table is hugely helpful. So as your to your point, Sherelle, some, mm -hmm. sometimes men can no longer have intercourse because their erections aren't working well enough. And sometimes women because the, of genitourinary syndrome of menopause, or mm -hmm. prolapse or other things that intercourse is no longer comfortable for them, it helps them have to, you know, sort of renew how they're going to interact together and back to uh, sexual enhancements and toys and vibrators. And Michael called them self-stimulators. It's not just self-stimulators. These are, you know, stimulators for each other. Mm -hmm. So uh, while you can use it by yourself, you also want to bring it into a, a, the sexual realm. It takes the pressure off of a male partner to have to insert himself if he no longer can because now you have many things that you can insert. If that's how she enjoys sexual pleasure, by all means, there are many ways to, to have penetration. And if penetration is no longer uh, what is pleasurable or ever was pleasurable, by the way, 40% of women are reliably orgasmic using a vibrator, mm -hmm. using a vibrator with clitoral stimulation. Um, the majority of women are not particularly orgasmic with penetrative sex that that just isn't how our anatomy works and so to validate to michael's point that to use a vibrator or to use a, a clitoral stimulator is not it is normal for you and that it doesn't mean that that uh, it's it's a, a problem and to michael's patient you know we call that delusion disorder on the partner's point where he thinks he's you know, creating multiple orgasms for his partners uh, who are, you know, probably faking for him. Um, and that's why he doesn't have them anymore. Uh, they, these are, you know, the normalcies of women that clitoral stimulation is key, that as particularly as we age, intercourse and penetrative sex isn't usually the most reliable way. And it creates um, novelty and enhancement and, uh, and, and eroticism to have to think out of the box.